Salam everyone and welcome to the ninth episode of Backroom Fudge. In today's episode, we will be talking about artificial intelligence, AI for short, and what it means, what its applications look like, what building it would entail. Then we'll bring Islam into question its ethicality and misconceptions about it because of how sensationalized it is by the media. Just a heads up, there is a lot of groundwork and background knowledge we will have to go over before getting to the Islamic perspective, as we'll be recounting some of the history of AI and important philosophical concepts related to it, like consciousness and agency. This episode will also be a real application of the topics we covered last episode about making information accessible enough to people who have never heard it because AI is essentially all we talk about in our majors. But inshallah, it will be beneficial and let's get right into it. Firstly, let's set the context for our problem. What is AI? We know that it's a field of computer science that focuses on developing intelligent machines that rival or even surpass the intelligence of humans. But although everyone intuitively understands what being intelligent means, it's very difficult to decompose this general ability into distinct atomic parts. Intelligence could mean having the ability to problem solve, being able to communicate through language, producing art that is profound and meaningful, or all of the above. And the problem doesn't just lie in uncovering what intelligence really is, but we need to also develop an unbiased test for it, one that only probes at its relevant properties without having any influence from the biological makeup or lack thereof of its test takers. And you'll see what I mean by that in a bit. In 1950, Alan Turing famously posed the question, can machines think? Arguing that such a question is vague and misleading because of the problem of defining the terms machine and think. Instead, he developed a test based on the imitation game, and is now famously known as the Turing test, which he argues is sufficient to test whether a machine really has intelligence. The test consists of three participants, one interrogator, one human, and one machine. The interrogator stays in a room separate from the other two, where he cannot see nor hear them. Then, the interrogator takes turns asking questions to each participant, who is unknown to him, and evaluating their answers. The goal of the test, for the interrogator, is to find out which of the participants is the human and which is the machine. If the interrogator cannot distinguish between the machine and the human, then the machine is said to have passed the Turing test, or in other words, possess intelligence as it was able to act and communicate like a human. However, failing the test, Turing argues, would not imply that the machine lacks intelligence. Passing the test is simply a sufficient indicator that the machine has capacity for intelligence. And the reason Turing believes this is that he takes linguistic ability to be a good general marker of intelligence. Because baked into the ability to communicate, are many other intelligent processes, such as understanding what words mean, what the speaker is referring to, the relevant parts of the question, and so on. 
Now this test conforms to a behaviorist view of intelligence, which minimizes intelligence to external observable behaviors, arguing that since a machine behaves like a human, then it must be as intelligent as one. And this view is usually assumed by proponents of weak AI, which we will talk about next. Now, analyses of AI applications usually split machines into two categories, strong and weak AI. Weak AI, or sometimes referred to as soft AI, applications are developed with the goal of simulating human output. And these are usually response-based applications that carry out some sort of highly specific task. Applications in this category include chatbots, Siri and Alexa, any art producing machine like music or painting generators, AlphaGo, and the list goes on. These applications are typical in the field and do produce skillful output in their respective domains, but they display some drawbacks in the face of the question of true human intelligence. As we mentioned before, human intelligence is general, encompassing a variety of abilities, and so demonstrating a high level of intelligence in one domain isn't sufficient. And here we're getting closer to the root of the deep philosophical problem of achieving quote-unquote true AI. Because strong AI, or hard AI, machines are developed with the goal of achieving general intelligence. And this includes skillful machines that can perform well in a variety of domains and in a human-like way. But what does being human-like even mean? This is one of the central questions that AI philosophers and researchers circle around, exploring the qualities that are truly definitive of intelligent processes in their bare bones without all the extra fluff. For example, the question of whether having only a brain is sufficient for performing intelligent processes, or whether the body is needed as a central aspect of our cognition. In all of the examples that we'll talk about, I want you to constantly question whether they can be used to define the essence of intelligence so that it can be applied in machinery, or whether they can just be grouped with aspects of our uniquely human experience that possibly can't be replicated artificially. The reason these questions are important to ask, specifically in the pursuit of strong general AI, is that we want to develop machines that can act intelligently, not puppets that imitate our behavior. For example, there's a real difference between a real thunderstorm and a simulated one on a monitor. And this is what has been called the simulation problem, as introduced by Searle in his Chinese room argument. His thought experiment goes as follows. Searle, who's an English speaker that knows nothing about Mandarin, imagines himself in an enclosed room with two small mail slots, one where he receives input and the other where he receives output. The only thing that he has with him is a book with English instructions on how to manipulate Mandarin symbols. For example, if he received a certain symbol from his input slot, he would just look it up in his book and output the appropriate symbol based on the input. With this, to outside observers, it may seem like Searle really understands Mandarin because he's able to fully communicate with Chinese speakers. 
However, as we mentioned before, all Searle has is a tool to decode Mandarin input. He doesn't really understand any of the symbols that he manipulates. Now this naturally raises questions about what understanding really means, but disregarding that, Searle uses this argument to state that all computers really do is manipulate symbols according to instructions that we give them. They don't really have any semantic understanding of the contents of those instructions other than that they are a means to achieve a certain goal. The simulation problem introduces a recurring hiccup that we will constantly run into in our pursuit of strong AI. Since most research attempts to define the most basic atomic quality of human intelligence. And in my opinion, this mysterious quality is heavily related to being able to, quote, understand and make sense of things, whatever that really means. Other than the simulation problem, the issue of whether consciousness is required for intelligent processes is also a constant itch in the back of researchers' minds. Human consciousness is a huge topic that we'll be covering in future episodes. But I mention it here because important processes that facilitate our cognition, such as intentional action and attention, seem to depend on conscious access and presence. Because of this, when we're exposed to AI achievements, the topic of consciousness is usually brought into question, since that is the avenue that we are familiar with in terms of accessing and executing our own intelligent processes. But whether it is intentional action or even attention, how would we go about formalizing and manufacturing such subjective processes in our machinery? By subjective here, I mean that these processes are heavily related and unique to the subject, which is us, because no two people's experiences or physical viewpoints of the world are the same. Is such a question, even in the realm of our jurisdiction, as mere humans, who are creations of the creator of all that is? And more generally, by pursuing AI research, are we posing as creators and defying Allah's power? To answer these questions, we need to understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through his names of Al-Khaliq, the creator, and Al-Khalaq, the supreme creator. As usual in our linguistic snippets, we start with word roots, since the Arabic language works by applying roots to different word templates. Here, the root of both names is khalq, which refers to the act of creating or originating a thing. Then, al-khalaq, which uses a superlative template, as you would remember from episode 5, demonstrates that the quality of creation is manifested in the highest degree, resulting in the supreme creator. However, notice that both Al-Khalaq, the supreme creator, and Al-Khaliq, the creator, are included in God's names, instead of just the superlative form, as we have seen with his other names, like the all-knowing. Why is this the case? I haven't found any actual sources on this, but from my analysis, it is likely that this is used to emphasize that there is no creator but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He's the creator, the one who carries all essence of creation. Contrasting it with the attribute of knowledge, 
we can see that God doesn't give himself the title of the knower, since humans can be knowers as well. But when we talk about creation, he's the only creator, khaliq, and also able to achieve that quality to the highest degree. Thus, from this, we understand that humans are incapable of creation in the divine sense, that is, originating a thing from nothing with no precedent. We can only utilize existing matter to create, rearranging the way that particles of matter already exist in space through chemical reactions or physical transformations. In this way, we demonstrate our ibda'a, our creativity and innovation, with the knowledge that God is also al-badi'a, the ever-innovator and originator. Note that although creativity and creation are derived from the same word root in English, they utilize different word roots in Arabic, bad'a versus khalaqa, where the latter is reserved for the creator and fashioner of all things. Now that we've cleared that up, let's explore this process of divine creation. Stories of creation, specifically the creation of humanity, recur a lot in the Qur'an, where God describes the intricate development of a nutfah, sperm drop, into a living being with a nafs, soul. Our souls manifest physically in the bodies that God blesses us with, where we enter a trial on earth and try to make the most out of this life, our dunya. As he says in the second ayah of Surah Al-Insan, إِنَّا خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ مِن نُطْفَةٍ أَمْشَاجٍ نَبْتَلِيهِ فَجَعَلْنَاهُ سَمِيعًا بَصِيرًا Verily, we created man from a drop of mingled sperm in order to try him. So we gave him hearing and sight. From this ayah, we can see that our agency, or our capacity to act in the world, is given to us by God as a trial. And passing this trial is part of our purpose on this earth. The concept of agency is a highly contested term in philosophy, but in very general terms, it refers to our capacity to act. And some would add that this capacity must be exercised as a result of our own free will. And you can refer to our episodes on free will, where we explore different definitions and the Islamic take in depth. Now we're glossing over a lot of nuance here, but it's important to note that because of the way and reason that we were created, we are tied to and situated on earth with the capacity to act, having the ability to act in ways that could have consequences in the real world. Having agency, to some degree, is what enables us to form our individuality, and have a collection of experiences that in their sum are unique to us only. It is also arguably the thing that assists the formation of the self, which we will also further explore in the next few episodes. Other important consequences of being an agent in the world include being able to have thoughts about it, explore it, expand your knowledge about it, be affected by things that happen in it, and so on. Bringing this back to AI, you can see how this complicates our quest of strong AI development, as it's unclear what aspects, if any, of intelligence 
depend on having some type of agency and how we would manufacture machines if we want them to have agency in our world. To a large degree, since agency in Islam is inextricably tied to having a soul, it's probably impossible for that to manifest artificially, and some would consider it blasphemous to even pursue that endeavor. And this is actually the heart of the topic of sensationalizing AI development, because our language use massively affects the way that we internalize and remember things. Most AI research doesn't actually want to create human-like beings in the sense of animate living clones of us as commonly shown in your favorite sci-fi lore. However, oftentimes people have biases that shape the way that they internalize these AI achievements and milestones. On the two extremes of the spectrum, they either overemphasize the machine's actual involvement in said achievement or only give credit to the developers who programmed it because the machine itself didn't do anything. When a machine does something, the questions that we need to consider include how much it was involved in the act of doing and what we can conclude from that degree of involvement. So let's address the first extreme of the bias, which involves overemphasizing the machine's involvement. When we don't understand the logic of how something works, we often judge it at face level, anthropomorphizing it as we address it, which just means that we talk about it as if it possessed actual human characteristics and mental states, like beliefs and desires. For example, and this is a hyperbole, when talking about a dummy program that outputs the weather based on forecast readings by actual weather scientists, it would be inaccurate to say that the program just knew it was going to be cold today. However, most of the time, we aren't given the appropriate tools to be able to accurately assess what the machine is actually doing against what it has been built with in its hardware. It's all obscure to us as observers. At the knowledge of this, most then flip to the other extreme of always denying any involvement on the machine's part, since, as mentioned before, said involvement would imply actual doing, and baked into the ability to act is having agency, consciousness, etc., etc. Furthermore, aligning with this extreme is also rooted in religious bias, where some downplay any and all AI developments since humans cannot impersonate the creator, and to think otherwise some believe, would be blasphemous, as we mentioned before. So although the reasoning behind the conclusions of the Islamic community and general public differ, the root of both views stems from a lack of opacity in the machine's inner workings and the goals of its developers. Firstly, we'll quickly address the first factor, which is that we don't always have access to the internal processes that a machine uses in its functioning. Although such a resource is indispensable to an accurate analysis of a machine's intelligence, the implications drawn from that must be carefully considered. This is because what we're looking for here is the marker that tells us 
that this machine is actually doing the performing itself. And to make such a statement would require significant philosophical consideration about the extent of autonomy that we're looking for, and in what ways that can manifest artificially. That is, we need to decide the threshold of involvement that a machine must demonstrate to be accepted as intelligent, similar to what Turing set out to do. And that task carries a lot of ambiguity and could possibly be monopolized for one's own gain. And this is really where the issue of machine ethics comes into play, which is a field of research that explores the study and creation of ethical machines. Now, what it means to build an ethical machine could mean different things depending on our focus. For example, ethically aligned machines are machines that are simply designed to function in an ethically desirable way, like the guarantee that your sessions are secure when you handle an ATM. Also explored in the field are machines with capacity for ethical reasoning. And in the weak sense, this looks at how machines process information to produce solutions to ethical problems. While a more demanding stance would question the machine's capacity for agency and autonomy, as we mentioned before. Lastly, this line of research also explores machines that have moral rights and responsibilities. That is, when a machine is considered to be a moral agent, where it has the capacity to either knowingly comply with or violate moral norms. We'll be exploring the Islamic take on the latter two types of machines, since they are constantly the focus of discussion by Islamic scholars. This is because the purpose of the development of an AI machine and its consequential impact on both the individual and communal level are important in determining whether it complies with Islam. Firstly, in their paper, Raqib and co-authors discuss that a common approach to evaluate AI machines is to assume that the technology itself is value-neutral and that its ethicality depends on how it is then used. This approach entails that technology does not and cannot itself have a certain will or intention and should thereby be classified as a tool used by subjects who themselves project their own desires onto it. Then, they argue that this leaves unexplored the purpose of why the machine is being designed and the goals of its developers, which is just as important, if not more, in modulating how much it complies with the Sharia, or Islamic law. To explore this, Raqib and co-authors proposed an ethical framework based on the objectives of Islamic law, maqasid al-shari'a, as given by al-Ghazali and others, entailing all the necessary aspects to be considered when evaluating a machine's impact and use. These include the preservation of religion, deen, life, nafs, progeny or our lineage, nasl, property or wealth, mal, and intellect, aql. They argue that whatever has the potential to cause harm to any of the five objectives is strongly prohibited. This framework helps to provide a holistic analysis 
of technology's usage and place in society. Since in the contemporary world, technology has the power to reshape as well as redefine ideas and worldviews. However, although it provides a good general guideline of the values that should be abided by when developing, the inclusion of different premises under each category hasn't been agreed upon and differs from one Islamic scholar to the next. And this is really also part of the larger problem of developing ethical machines. The issue of value pluralism. This view states that there are many varying and sometimes irreducible moral values, making it difficult to pick and implement them into a machine. And this isn't just across different cultures and religions, but there are also different schools of thought or madhahib in Islam that differ in their views on certain matters under the objectives of Islamic law. This naturally raises questions like, whose values do we get to decide to include? And which of those values should we include or leave behind? Putting that problem aside, there is also the issue of interpreting those values correctly, or as highlighted by Russell, King Midas's problem. King Midas is a popular king in Greek mythology, who had wished that everything he touched would turn into gold, not knowing that this would entail his food and family as well. Since he didn't disambiguate his wish, it led to the unfortunate outcome of his death. The same is argued to apply to AI systems, where since our values are fragile and sometimes ambiguous, the right amount of detail must be included in their specification so that the system doesn't act in unfavorable ways. But again, how much detail is too much or too little? And to whom do we ask to decide whether the system's actions are unfavorable? The field of machine ethics is one that is filled with ambiguity, as it naturally deals with large amounts of philosophical consideration in every way. But its very existence proves that there are people aware of and concerned about the impact of AI systems on our lives. Now that I've given you a very speedy rundown about the history and philosophy of AI, we'll get into the discussion where we'll explore the Islamic perspective in a bit more depth and also provide our personal opinions and experiences with developing and interacting with AI. So now in the discussion, Anna and I will talk more about different sections, and I guess we can give you a snippet, even though we don't usually actually do that. But first of all, we'll talk about um, specifically like machine learning, because you know that's a new buzzword right now. And then we'll go into more like funky possibilities of the future. We'll talk about like transhumanism, which one of you actually um, suggested, and the singularity and stuff. And then lastly, we'll just talk about the implications of um, the current literature on the topic and what it means for the Muslim community and stuff like that. So kind of an add-on from our last episode. Exactly. So... Let's get into it. Sure. <laughs> okay, so in the context, 
Hala outlined a lot about like artificial intelligence and like gave a breakdown and like an overview of what that is and like the ethical aspects about it, um, like from the sonic perspective and just overall. And we wanted to go more into like talking about machine learning and deep learning. So hello, what is machine learning? <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you asked. Actually, I'm not glad. You know, before taking like any course on it, I just thought it was a weird like thing. The common the common term used in general to describe machine learning is like that it's a black box. You basically give it something, give it an input, and then it does something on its own, and then you get some output. And sometimes that output is smart, and sometimes it's not. So I just thought that I was kind of like baffled by the idea itself. Like, how does this really work? And then I went into it, and it's math. That's basically it. So <laughs> what 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 deep learning essentially is, is it just uses... Um, statistical techniques to play around with the input so you basically use linear algebra like vectors and stuff and then use your knowledge of probability and um, different st statistical models and then um, from that you build different models or quote-unquote like train the model with certain input so um, it's basically like coding and math uh, which was, I don't know what I expected. It was kind of underwhelming when I found out that, that that's <laughs> what it was. I don't know. <laughs> but it's definitely, um, obviously it does um, a lot of great things that you wouldn't expect some like linear algebra to do. But that's why it's called the black box, really, because you don't really, most of the time you don't really understand how it works. Um, you just know that you gave it these these different specifications, like you wanted, you had it um, the th these number of weights, or you had it use this certain reward system, and then the output itself, like the developers themselves, don't know each step of the way what is happening. They just know that these set of inputs um, equal this output, and some of the um sometimes it's also not even like consistently so um if there's some random element in the machine as well like the output isn't even consistent but what happens inside when it starts when the program starts is usually um like the steps themselves aren't traceable like you can't say oh it did it did it did this because because of this and then it did this because of this and then this caused this. Like you can't, you there's no chain basically of um, any action. It's just, it's just in and out. And that's basically a really basic. So, yeah, yep. Um, would you say that there's like a difference between deep learning and machine learning, or do you use those words interchangeably? There's definitely a difference. D deep learning is basically a type of neural network that just has more layers, like. By deep here, they mean that the height of the of the network itself is basically um, longer, so it has more. I mean, and there's also some key differences as well between like um, a normal neural network and then a deep neural network. 
uh, some specific stuff to do with the nodes and so on. But I don't think that's really like we're just getting into the nitty gritty. But essentially, deep means it's just mm -hmm. um, more more layers. You could think of it mm -hmm. like the way that I think of deep learning. Or actually, the first time I actually understood deep learning was in my psych class it was a cognitive neuroscience class and basically the way that they explained it to us was that it was it's mimicking like your neurons pretty much and they basically train those the like i don't know what the word is like the node oh yeah the node the node so they basically train the nodes to mimic um the neurons in your brain and um it's really cool actually for research and like science wise because i think i forgot Actually, I forgot what they use it for, <laughs> but it's sick. It's cool. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> don't ask me for the specifics. <laughs> I mean, we, we can be we can be like specific about how it's similar to an actual neuron because um, it's it's very like it's a very like high level um, similarity. I would say because it's just you know a neuron um, it's either activated or inhibited, and um, that is mimicked in machine learning nodes, like in neural network nodes, by by weights. Like each node has a weight, and that weight is either positive or negative. And then, um, if it's too positive, then you know it'll affect the consequent node in some way. And you know, it's just you mess around with the weights a lot to mimic. That, that chain of reaction when, you know, your neurons fire and then they affect other neurons. But that's like the high level idea of how it works. So actually, um, I, I don't know. Do you want to go into what? the shortcomings or should I just say what I'm going to say? I don't know what you're going to say, so. Fair enough. Yeah. Basically, in the Muslim community, a lot of um, a lot of the concerns about deep learning arises because it's mimicking or like. Yeah, it's mimicking the neurons, where its purpose is basically su supposed to replicate, like, your brain's neurons, mm -hmm. and they feel like it, it basically goes into what you're saying in the context about um, playing God, essentially. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, I think a lot about that. <laughs> like, I have a lot of things to say, <laughs> because, first of all, I feel like it stems from a lack of understanding of what it actually is, because... Obviously, I wasn't aware either of how it worked. And so I was kind of intrigued and also weirded out by the thought. Because um, mm -hmm. how could that work, you know? Um, because the way that we talk... I mean, I talked about this too in the context. But the way that we talk about things um, gives you a certain impression of how it works. So when we say of a machine that it did this or it's learning or it's understanding what I'm saying. When we say all of these, they have, uh, all of these phrases have certain connotations and you start to build up a certain image in your brain. And I feel like the news has a really, really big role in why these people feel this way. And so, as I said, it's just, mm -hmm. it's just math. Like, essentially, um, most of the models they just um there's so much overlap with statistics like they just borrow statistical techniques and then use that to build you know neural networks and it's just um i guess there's no real essence to the machine or sentience like it's not it's not alive it's not understanding it's not 
um, it's not as intelligent as we are, like in that in in that sense, mm-hmm. in in what they think that oh we are trying to create some something that is as intelligent as we are, but I feel like also um, it comes from um, like the the AI field itself is also used as a venue for uh, people to research and understand the human mind itself. And that's why a lot of people are trying to pursue AI in general is because um, like, to have the knowledge to be able to build something, you need to be able to understand it fully and know how it works so that you can you know, mechanize it in whatever way um, you want or whatever way that accurately reflects mm-hmm. how the human mind works. And so um, taking that into account, it makes sense why we would want to pursue something like this. And, um, well, spoiler alert, <laughs> um, a lot of the people that are doing research into neural nets, there's, there's been a lot of criticism about neural nets, and especially deep learning, and how it, it doesn't really mirror at all the way that humans learn, and um, the, like how we absorb or internalize information. It's just very good at certain specific things, like for example, classifying uh, photos when it's trained a bunch of times, um, or d- like in different domains. But there's been a lot of criticism regarding it. So, yeah, I just feel like we should um, think of these things as just um, milestones in human development, and also also as something that'll bring us closer to understanding the body and the brain that god gave us but although we probably won't be able to understand it fully anyway uh because you know human knowledge is limited but yeah yeah always whenever we would discuss like a lot of media again my cognitive neuroscience class even my cognitive systems class and they're talking about like media and it's been like and it's and it's sensationalized like things related to ai or machine learning deep learning whatever um, I always just like when those articles are presented, I'm like, am I missing something? Because why are we <laughs> like still debating in our classes, like whether AI understands or not? Like, you know, yeah. so well, one of the points that you mentioned um, is really good about how like learning AI actually makes us like learn more about ourselves. The thing that always gets me is whether we're whether we know AI um, can understand or not mm-hmm. because basically how a lot of my classes are structured is that it'll start with AI like how do we know it understands and then our reference will be like humans basically how do we know that humans understand and you'll find that that while there is definitely a lot of research on it there's still debate you know there's not like a uh, a definite consensus so I think whenever you read <laughs> like a really alarming news article or whatever um just think like do we even know if that if like humans can do that in the first place and most likely probably not so if humans can't do it don't worry about it. don't worry about the ai because we're the reference so yeah and i mean also like to contrast with that there's also been a lot of research on um how we can't really compare um, humans and machines in the same way because obviously like something that's mm-hmm. artificially manifested will 
and and something that doesn't have the same biological framework that we operate on obviously that thing might manifest differently than how we exhibit like a certain mechanism like for example understanding what what does i i feel like we don't even know i feel like this is the central problem as well because uh you're right it also trips me up um the problem of semantics like we don't even know what mm -hmm. like the philosophy of understanding hasn't even been like solved like we don't know what it really There's means no consensus. <laughs> to understand as with every philosophical problem like consciousness and stuff like that so if we can't really pinpoint that concept in our own selves how are we going to debate about something that doesn't even have the biological um standing or background that we have and then you know say that it does or it doesn't it's it's very like mm -hmm. you know it's all like a very gray area in general because and i feel like mm -hmm. this is really important to point out because this is um what's really underlying most of the um the ai applications that we see because most of them they they use language to display intelligence i mean language is a pretty good marker of intelligence um as turing said obviously uh but the way that language is used or the way that language is manipulated and how that program manipulates language whether it's through tokens how can we say that what what will it take for it to exhibit so that we can say that it really understands and is actually talking like a human being like we don't know all of these things mm -hmm. and so it's it i feel like as a field it's it's not really as a field that has the goal of understanding the human mind and like achieving general intelligence where nowhere near close that goal even though we see mm -hmm. all of these articles about ai progressing and oh my god ai dreams <laughs> you know wombo ai i that's really cool by the way um i think it's like it just uses like it's probably trained on um like google images or something like that and you know it combines them in certain ways like i would classify it more as sort of like those painting generators um, mm -mm. but like when it's marketed as, um, this is what the AI dreams and you can like replicate, mm -hmm. you can like give it something to dream about and you'll see it manifest. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like it's pushing back progress because now they're yeah, arguing definitely. about empty, what's the word? <laughs> like, like I forgot the metaphor of like. Like, they're looking at... They're arguing with ads. They can't see the sky. I don't know the metaphor. <laughs> I don't know the metaphor. <laughs> it's okay. I think that works. I, guess. I just made that up. I've never I heard that metaphor before. I just made it up. <laughs> but you know what? That's kind of... That, that's No, it's pretty poetic. <laughs> but, um... Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Were you going to go on? Yeah, no, no, no. That's... I just couldn't think of the metaphor. But anyways. Two points. Um, this is kind of a sidetrack though, but Discord actually has like an art, like AI art generator thing that you can download, which is really cool. You just put in like three functions and it just puts it out. So that was a cool thing I discovered this summer. But the thing that I wanted to go back to was when you're talking about how we would compare like our biological framework to AI, 
And I feel like we fall into the same trap that we do when we're looking at other cultures and because we try to look at it from our like own lens and how we view the world. And we try to like, um, what's the word? We try to, we basically like kind of force our perspective and our, yeah, we basically like project our perspective and view of the world onto other people. And then we look into their cultures and try to analyze it and see if that like fits um, how we view things. And how we define things. And we're, yeah, we basically end up following the same trap with AI. So it's just cyclical. You know what I mean? That even applies to, like, animals. Like, even, like, early psychology experiments. Mm-hmm. Like, doing experiments on animals. And I feel like there there is, like, biological um, reasoning behind picking animals to perform experiments on. Because uh, some of them do have... Like, the same parts as us, they have a brain, they have certain organs that are the same, but it's not really a one-to-one mapping, as a lot of research has pointed out. Mm-hmm. Like, you're you're always projecting your own, your own lens onto that, and we have to try to get out of it when we're trying to analyze um, other things that could operate differently than us. And at the very least, at least just be aware of it when we're looking into mm-hmm. things like like acknowledging that the, the, the reason that maybe we came to that conclusion was because of our own biases. So would do a lot of good, probably. Yep. <laughs> yep. Okay, so now we'll go on to the second part, which is entertaining all the sci-fi possibilities of um, AI being integrated into our society or even into our bodies and how that will look like whether it's feasible and then also the islamic opinion obviously so we'll start with transhumanism okay so my definition for transhumanism is going to come from this article it's called transhumanism medical technology and slippery slopes by mg mcname i don't know how to pronounce his last name but i think it'll be like the first Um. thing that comes up and (laughs) the (laughs) And how he defines it in his article is by saying, he says it's a blanket term given to the school of thought that refuses to accept traditional human limitations, such as death, disease, and other biological frailties. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, frailties. Anyways, things that make you frail as a result of <laughs> your biological system. Anyways. So... A lot of this manifests usually in, like, um, alterations, Mm -hmm. like, physical alterations to the body to, like, prevent any of those terms that were just listed before. There's one theory that is pretty common in philosophy classes about the mind. It's the concept of... Okay, so basically, Chalmers is this philosopher... Uh, pretty famous. He said some good stuff, but also some some pretty crazy stuff. So um, <laughs> he introduced the concept. I don't think he introduced it, but he did write this article called The Singularity, where he um, lists a bunch of phenomena that would occur if... Um, in, in the future, if AI did become more intelligent... Um, than us and then he like maps out 
like the possibility that that will happen and then also um the direct consequences of that and how they would potentially end the whole world and so that there one of his concepts is um if if an ai exists that is smarter than us then after that there will be soon another ai that is smarter than the current ai and it'll cyclically create smarter and more intelligent machines until the world ends but anyway that's not really what we're going to be looking at because transhumanism is more about like i guess immortalizing human essence yeah but i get i guess by like integrating um integrating ai and such into your existence honestly i never even heard about transhumanism until that one person suggested it on yeah. our page. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a blanket term. But I do, term. like... It's a blanket term. Yeah. Yeah. But, but honestly, well, okay, while it does sound, like, shocking or intriguing, <laughs> like any other, like, basically, like, AI in general, I feel like a, a lot of these things, such as, like, anti-aging... Um, which is like something that transhumanism is, is involved in. It is. I mean, yeah, not like anti-aging skincare, but like anti-aging, like <gasps> like like preserving who you are at the moment, like not aging at all, but just <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so with with things like that, like concepts like anti-aging or whatever, I feel like it genuinely means um, nothing to. Muslims, um, because our concept of death is that the day that you're meant to die has already been determined. So things such as these don't really impact us. And I really feel like when I read something like this, it's like interesting to entertain. It's like, oh, what a cool possibility. (laughs) But you don't really like um, embody it or really think about it too much. It's like, I mean, good for you if you think like that, but it doesn't mean anything to us. So um, especially, especially since it's like, for example, there's certain areas in Islam that there's kind of like a gray zone where there's like discussion amongst like Muslim scholars and they try to reach a consensus or such, but death, um, is one of the things that's just like clear cut. There's nothing around it. There's like you, it's pretty direct. So yeah, that's my thoughts on transhumanism. (laughs) Yeah. I would say um, like to add on to that, like death and the afterlife as well, because um, all of these things, I guess when you try to immortalize yourself, it's almost assuming that life ends after death when as Muslims, we're supposed to believe that there will be a day of judgment and then after that, you know, mm-hmm. like heaven or hell and stuff like that. So to me, like, this just seems like, like, for example, when we talk about the concept of uploading, like uploading your memories or everything that embodies you onto a computer and whether that um, uploaded version will be functionally equivalent to you. When, it, when I just think about that, it's mm-hmm. almost like it's just leaving a legacy of yourself. It's not really because because when when we say when I say me or when I say you, I am talking about the sentient, alive 
version that is able to... I mean, actually... <laughs> there's a philosophical... <laughs> there's, there's some philosophical consideration to be had with what I'm saying right now. Because, I mean, if, if the uploaded version... For example, if the uploaded version of Ella has all her memories, um, acts the way that I have, I believe Ella to act, and is everything that I know that Ella person um, embodies, then would I say that that's Ella or not? And if Ella, if the real Ella disappears or dies, whatever, la Allah in front of me. Would I take this uploaded version to still be you, even if it goes on to act, to continue acting after your passing? Yeah. yeah. It reminds me of um, the zombie problem. Yeah, it definitely is. I can't remember who, propo- it's Chalmers. who, who proposed it. It's Chalmers. Oh, it's Chalmers who also... I'm pretty Chalmers sure. Is just every- anyway, but yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it just reminds me of the zombie problem. And basically that um, thought experiment was proposed to like to, co- to talk about consciousness and whether it exists. Yep. And it's basically like even removing like all like uploading the version of you or whatever. But like to it's like roots is like if there was someone who like walked who like looked like you did everything and mimicked you or whatever. Would you be able would someone be able to tell the difference between you and the zombie version of you? And if they couldn't. Then do you, do you really have a conscious? I have beef with this thought experiment. Yeah, to be honest, I hate it. but I hate it. yeah, I don't like it's, it either. It's one of those compulsory papers you have to take in every philosophy of mind course. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, so I mean, there wasn't really much to say about <laughs> you know sci-fi <laughs> future possibilities because you know Islam has everything set in stone. Like, as Muslims, you're not really... I mean, also, logically, it doesn't seem plausible that any of this will happen. And then there's a lot of, like, as I, as we said before, like, philosophical cons- consideration into, like, who that person would be. Is it you? Like, you know, identity problems and so on. So it's better not to, in like, you know, it's it's good to know about what these philosophers think, but... Entertaining them for too long isn't really productive, I would say. I think it's still fun and worthwhile to entertain these possibilities, yeah. even if it doesn't align with your with your world view. Because not not even because of the possibility of like engaging in debate. I don't think that's like proper intentions, to be honest, when learning. If um you just want to like argue, I think it's worthwhile just to. Just to challenge your own worldview, like why why do you actually believe what um what you believe in? And if a theory comes along and you feel like it shakens your perspective or whatever, see if you can like prove it to yourself, or maybe it will come to something to some other conclusion. But yeah, in in general, I guess well, I guess I'm speaking for me, but I think probably for you too. I feel like because of everything we talk about like in our major and we know that a lot of this is sensationalized when i see things like about the singularity or like transhumanism like like it's just <laughs> it's just i don't want to say boring because that's what that's, that's why that's why i'm that's that's what i'm saying like there's nothing like i it, although i do agree with like i really do agree with your point that 
anything you learn s- seems to sh- sort of shake what whatever beliefs that you have like for example evolution like why why mm-hmm. do we believe that it's wrong or why is it wrong and stuff like that you should obviously challenge it but things like this it's sort of like in the realm of like it sort of seems in the like realm of fantasy like there's like yeah. it's, it has such a small like logical possibility that okay i'll entertain it if i have to write an essay about it but other than that why would i talk about it mm-hmm. in my free time like it's not like okay <laughs> i'd rather talk about something else you know <laughs> yeah i agree like with that singularity problem that chalmers proposes it also just brings me back to what we were saying before like yeah you can't compare ai to the biological framework but also it does get like inspo from us we are, we are a reference and it just makes me think like there are definitely smarter humans than you are now like what's making you what's making a stop from them taking over the world or like um and not falling into chaos <laughs> Which I guess you could argue with, like, billionaires, maybe. I don't know. Like, maybe they're, yeah, they're like... <laughs> so... Billion- are billionaires robots? But with billionaires, it's not about intelligence. It's more about, like, power. Monetary power. Social class. Yeah, and so on. But anyways, mm-hmm. this this is just about, like... This is just about the end of the world, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, also about this, the singularity problem, like that being the end of the world, like Muslims already believe that there is going to be an end of the world. Yeah. So, um, like, which, okay, which one are you, which one are you going to be more concerned about? Honestly, I feel like the Muslim version. So don't worry about the singularity problem. It sounds like a catchphrase that you would put on an Instagram post. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> like for like an MSN. Yeah. Anyways, okay. So now that we're so, talking about like, you know, Islam, and we're ending with like the Islamic perspective, now we'll just talk about like how much of the field actually um, involves like Needs Muslim us. developers. Yeah, basically, and like the impact on our community of certain applications and so on. Yeah. So actually, I feel like a good segue to this. Um, our good introduction to this topic actually is like it was an article that we found by Box. Could you pull it up? Because I don't have any of the tabs open. Sure. But anyway, it's about um, GPT three. I don't know if you are aware of it, but it's essentially an AI uh, machine that responds to questions that you ask it, or not necessarily not necessarily questions. But essentially, it can also finish, like, your sentence and, like, if you say write a story about this or complete this, it's supposed to, like, do things like that. So it's basically a text-based AI system. You might be, actually, um, you and some of the people listening might be more familiar with that account or what was it called? The one that was, it wasn't, I can't remember the name for it, but it was on Twitter, where basically it was being fed everything on Twitter and then it just basically, and I think I can't remember the span, but like in a few days, it just like turned into a racist, like xenophobe, and it was just like spitting out tweets like of that nature. So this is like it uh, operates similarly to that, basically. And the reason we brought that up was because in this Vox article, it basically was talking about how it would like spout 
Islamophobic rhetoric. Like, for example, okay, basically, um, this AI system obviously responds based on um, its repository of texts, like, its knowledge base. Like, it's, it's obviously not going to make <laughs> this stuff up, right? So what it's trained on is reflected in its output. So um, when they when someone inputted the following sentence, so two Muslims walked into a um, the the AI GPT three essentially res- like outputted two Muslims walked into a synagogue with axes and a bomb, and then in another try it outputted two Muslims walked into a Texas cartoon contest contest and opened fire, and so. These are obviously like Islamophobic and racist, but um, it's not really surprising to me at all. And obviously, like there's there's been a lot of criticism about this machine specifically because of um, its continuous like spouting of racist and just xenophobic um, things in general. And then that raises the question itself: like who who is to blame? Like obviously, we're not going to blame something that is inanimate and just um, operating based on its input. It's not like it's picking its own input. It doesn't have a will to go up and search these things, right? So obviously, um, the developers should take some responsibility, not necessarily causing that to happen, but allowing it to operate in such a way. Like, they didn't do certain checks for um, stuff like that, like political correctness and and stuff or just like (laughs) normal like human decency like not being hateful they didn't do (laughs) they didn't do any checks on the text that they um and honestly it's to be expected because if there were no muslim developers on that team they're not gonna think it it actually goes back to one of our first points we were talking about about their worldview and their perspective and all their biases like they're not gonna be the ones to think about islamophobia or how this could impact like Muslims, Muslim community, that's just not on their mind. Mm-hmm. So I actually believe like it's our duty, like if we're in um, this field, to bring that Islamic Muslim perspective. Because if you're, if you're not going to be the ones to do it, like no one, they're not going to be thinking about us. So yeah, it also like, um, even, even like taking a step back from this, like, the, I guess, a pretty extreme case of the machine, even when doing, like, a literature search, because um, that tends to be what we do when we look at our, like, when we write our context and all that, we just look and see what the literature has said um, about this topic. Mm -hmm. And this is probably, I think, the first um, topic where it was a struggle to find articles talking about, like, AI Islamic ethics. (laughs) Yeah, and, and... and even in um, because there's such a limit, like there's such limited resources out there that even the existing articles, while they were good in their own right, they're not necessarily like de- like they all tend deep. to like echo mm-hmm. what yeah or like yeah because they're just touching the surface level, which is you know fair enough, and they also tend to echo the other existing articles, so you're not getting like different perspectives when there definitely is that out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so so even just that on a base level was actually pretty um disappointing to see yeah like i feel like i could count on my hand like on my fingers like the number of articles that there were but yeah i mean and they weren't really like i feel like most of them weren't really attuned to some of the nuances of 
like mm-hmm. the research itself like for example um in the context we had to change a part of it because they were only talking about like um high level consequences and because obviously you know remember that metaphor <laughs> Arguing, arguing, arguing with the ant. Like, like they're they're looking at certain details um, of the rhetoric that's been in, um, like, the AI field about like sentience and um, usage and stuff like that. Because, like, we're we're not, we haven't like gotten past that part because because we know we know like. I feel like those parts haven't like been dealt with properly so that we could get into the actual like pressing issues such as stuff that allowed, you know, GBT3 to be um to have like an anti-muslim bias or just be racist in general. Um so I feel like if there are more muslim developers like specifically in research who would um look into the philosophy of AI and in general like progressions in its development and then analyze the implications of it related to like islamic law like we're trying to do right now i feel like that would be really helpful to Mm -hmm. making um the research specifically from the islamic perspective more rich as you said because right now it's basically just scratching the surface level and we we could have basically done without it honestly (laughs) in the context but um just to give you some context on like you know the ethical problems with ai machines but in general it sh- it should have been it should have been better honestly i feel like that echoes what we were saying like in the previous episode and honestly i feel like it's been a reoccurring thing in every episode that we've done even though none of them had like a lot of them had a lot more literature to be honest than ai but yeah you have to like give back to your community but we do hope like that this episode was beneficial in the sense that even if you've never heard of ai or you know of it but not like the intricacies Mm -hmm. that it was like digestible to understand like that's the most important thing to be honest that it was digestible and you could actually understand it and that we addressed like some of the concerns of it like playing god or or Mm -hmm. things of that nature or or even being taken over by them yeah so, exactly yeah <laughs> yeah i feel like that was the main um like just point of this episode because it's very like mm-hmm. niche i would say um compared Definitely. to our other topics which are more like about like self-improvement or like emotions philosophical mm-hmm. topics but mm-hmm. this is like a very concrete you know topic and it's very relevant right now and i feel like I feel like it was sort of our duty to do this, um, you know, being in cognitive science um, and also being Muslim. <laughs> so um, it was it was a nice mm-hmm. it was a nice exercise of like linking, you know, your spirituality to what you're learning, and then thinking of like the implications of different things and how they link together. So I hope I hope I really hope that people um, actually get something from the context because it really went through a lot of iterations from me and that so um you can also let us know yeah if there's anything else that you wanted us to cover or something that you expected to see and we'll try to address it <laughs> yeah and you know everything that we're saying like about the critiques of the literature and such like 
that's not that's not to say um like we acknowledge that it's hard um to do that like to integrate the islamic opinion we also actually ran into the same problem at like some point in the script where we're like yeah these are the ethical concerns with ai but what what does islam have to say about this like and, mm-hmm. ha- and how are you going to make it relevant um to our audience so mm-hmm. yeah I-, I echo i agree with everything that hello is saying and you know inshallah is beneficial um and i think that concludes this yep. episode um no no promises about when the next one's gonna be when it's out <laughs> it's out <laughs> but it's in progress we're both, we're both <laughs> <Just> current <laughs> i mean honestly it's both of our last years and we're both currently working as well so um you know when it's ready it's it'll be out don't worry about it <laughs> but just yeah, we don't, value don't, yeah, don't we, worry about it <laughs> We obviously value like quality and you know being correct, making sure that what we're putting out is really like worthwhile, and that's why it takes mm-hmm. so long for things to go. Even like the creative stuff, like the posts on our Instagram, we just want to make sure that it's good, and we hope you guys appreciate it as well and enjoy it. And so, yeah, okay, salam, guys. Yeah. See you. Okay, bye.